Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's May the 17th, 2022. Not just leading thinkers and writers, but headline makers. Uh, I'm thrilled today that uh, my guest on the show, uh, Mark T. Esper, the former uh, Secretary of Defense in the Trump administration, is on the show to talk about his new book. And he's been making headlines, so maybe we can make some headlines in today's conversation. He was on the, still, the Stephen Colbert show, and he was grilled by Colbert, apparently. No one likes being grilled by Colbert for apparently cashing in, uh, at least according to these headlines, on the Trump uh, secrets, lots of debate about uh, whether or not uh, men like Secretary Esper should have spoken out against Trump earlier than uh, cashing in, perhaps, on their memoirs, to use that term. Uh, he was on Face the Nation at the weekend talking about how the January 6th committee needs to get to the bottom of the truth about Donald Trump's involvement with that insurrection. Um, Jude Apatow apparently blasted Esper. I'm not sure if uh, Mark Esper is too concerned about that one. Uh, and some of the revelations in this new book, A Sacred Earth, uh, A Sacred Oath, not Earth, A Sacred Oath, have been making headlines of their own, including the fact that uh, Trump proposed launching missiles into Mexico to destroy uh, the drug labs, and above all else, that uh, at one point uh, in 2020, uh, Esper says that Trump asked about shooting the protesters outside, of course, the church. That's all in a sacred earth, and I'm thrilled, as I said, that Secretary Esper is on the show today. Uh, Mark, I'm not going to grill you uh, like Colbert did because I don't have his culinary skills. But <laughs> how would you respond to a lot of the criticism that you should have said all this stuff earlier? It's all very well saying it now, two or three years after Trump's out of office. Well, first of all, Andrew, thanks for ha having me on the show. I, I appreciate it. And uh, look, I try to be fair to people. So let me just say that headline about Colbert grilling me is completely wrong. Watch the watch the uh, video. Uh, Stephen was a very good host. We had a good discussion. Uh, people all want to make their news and get their headlines. So I, I thought it was a good conversation with him, as I, I'm sure it will be with you. Look, let me say this much. Um, you know, my uh, my differences with uh, President Trump grew over time. Um, they really accelerated in the spring of 2020 after he beat impeachment. And we reached this epic moment on June 1st, 2020, uh, where he wants to call uh, American paratroopers into the streets of uh, the nation's capital and even suggests, as we, we, I'm sure we'll discuss, shooting them. And But there are a number of things that happened before then, such as, uh, you know, Stephen Miller proposing a quarter million of troops to the border to deal with caravans coming from Latin America or uh, the president proposing we shoot missiles into Mexico. And as I encountered these outlandish ideas, uh, you know, I asked myself, particularly really after June 1st, should I stay or should I go? And I wrestled with this. It's a, one of these great ethical dilemmas, if you will. And I talk about in the first five pages of my book is what should I do? And I, at the end of the day, I came back to my sacred oath, which is to the Constitution and not to the president, not to a party, not to a philosophy. And I figured as while it may have saved me a lot of grief and heartache to just step away, resign and speak out on the spot. 
I thought the better thing for me to do as a public servant with six months left before the election is to stay in office and to continue to prevent bad things from happening. While I also advanced a, a positive agenda at, at the Pentagon, because I knew these ideas were floating out there. They were being floated by either the president himself or his, his loyalists around him. And I also knew with six months left, uh, there wouldn't be time to confirm somebody, uh, you know, a good person that Trump would put a loyalist in and, and a group of loyalists as we, as we would see once I'm, I'm fired. And so for those reasons, I decided to stay in the job, take the heat, and uh, bat back a series of what I thought were bad ideas and push back on others and get us to the election. And we can talk about some of those. But again, I thought at the end of the day, that was my higher duty. Uh, I consulted my wife. I, I consulted my predecessors from both parties. Uh, I, I went as far as to, you know, I, I had a relationship with General Colin Powell. And to a person, they all said, look, you got to stay. It's the right thing to do. It's the tough thing to do, but stay and serve out your tenure and, and help get us through this election. So, Secretary Espes, do you think you were sufficiently trained for these extraordinary times? Reading your narrative and thinking about the situation and thinking about your life. I mean, you're a you're a classically trained public servant. You went to West Point, uh, the JFK School of Government. Um, you've done all the right things, and you find yourself. Um, in this really bizarre, surreal world of Donald Trump, whether or not you should have taken the job or not um, is, is, of course, another question. That's more of a personal question. But do you think you were prepared? It's almost as if a, a, a Shakespeare, a Shakespearean actor or someone trained in, 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 in the theater of Shakespeare uh, was suddenly placed in, a, in an absurd farce. Do you think you were ready for this role? Yes, I, I do. I, look, I couldn't have had any better training or education than going to West Point, where, you know, for four years, duty, honor, country were grilled into me. Um, you know, we would take classes about ethics, professional uh, professional ethics, the ethos of of uh, the relationship between the military and civilian society. And then, of course, uh, that continued during my 10 years on active duty and then another 11 years in the Guard and Reserve. And as you mentioned, I went to the Kennedy School. I completed my Ph.D., which was about national security policy and Congress's role. So, uh, you know, all those things I thought prepared me well. And the interesting part about this is Sorry. about my oath. Go ahead. Preparing you well, perhaps for a conventional president and a conventional world. But as you know, in the subtitle, these were extraordinary times. Yeah. Whatever one says about Donald J. Trump, he was an extraordinary man and an extraordinary president. Do you think that when you were at West Point, when you were at the, the Kennedy School, could you ever have imagined a president like Trump? No, not at all. And, and I never took a class that said, how do you deal with, you know, a Trump personality or or, or person, right? Um, no, I never imagined that. And as I, I was starting to say, I never really had to think about my oath uh, until I became Secretary of Defense and I started confronting these issues. And, and it was a conundrum. What do you do if the president of the United States, the the, uh, the, the commander in chief under Article two of the Constitution says do one thing, and yet you know your oath to the Constitution and what's right for the country and the American people uh, tells you something else. And these were the issues that I wrestled with. And look, I was fortunate that the president rarely gave direct orders. So uh, I, I didn't wasn't faced with that dilemma, but I could follow my, my heart and my head, which was put the country in the oath first, which is what we're all sworn to do, right? If you're an elected leader in the United States. 
You use the word surreal sometimes, and a lot of the descriptions of the Trump administration have been surreal. As I said, the subtitle of the book is uh, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. H how surreal were they, Secretary Espers? Did you sometimes come home at night and have to pinch yourself and think, did this really all happen? I'd come home a lot of nights and just sit down with my wife and uh, and just kind of tell her what was going on in my day to, <laughs> and, and kind of get her reaction. And, you know, I famously quote her in the book, the beginning, uh, as I wrestle with this dilemma, should I stay or should I go? And she says to me uh, very poignantly, she says, you know, as your wife, please quit. As an American, please stay. Because she, you know, we she was with me during my time in the Army. Uh, she saw me go to war and come home. Uh, she was with me during my years on Capitol Hill. She, she knew me. She knew my professional life. We'd been married for 32 years. And she, she was a great sounding board and kind of my, you know, the person that kind of, you know, kept me straight during these difficult times. We've done a lot of shows about, as, as every podcast and television show is about Donald Trump. We did one with John Carl, I'm sure you know, very prominent television correspondent. He had an interesting book, Front Row at the Trump Show. Right. Uh, was it a show, Secretary Esper? Was it like being on television? And perhaps that might have been a more appropriate training to have just watched a lot of American television. It, it, it wasn't a show for me because it was real. It was life and death for American service members. It was the institution oftentimes on the line. You know, whether, would it endure as an apolitical organization or not? But I think for, for President Trump, it was a show. It was about you know, what can he do, say, how can he present himself in a way that will increase ratings, right? Ratings being measured not in terms of Nielsen ratings, but in terms of polling ratings. And how will that drive his election or re-election? So, you know, I think to him in many ways it was a show, but to me it wasn't. It was real. It was, you know, look, the country means a lot to me. You asked, why did I go in? Because I'm a, I'm a glutton for public service. I first took the oath at age 18 at West Point and did it a dozen more times. So, for me, it's very real. It's about our country. It's about our future. And uh, and then we talk about the institutions and how important they are to our democracy. And uh, Donald Trump, you know, did not respect those things. Do you think that, and, and it seems to me, that the most surreal moment in this surreal presidency, in this surreal, uh, surreal period in American life, um, was an, a, a series of events which, of course, you were very much involved with, the photo op outside the church in Washington, D.C., which um, ultimately, I think, triggered your departure from the administration. How weird was that? Well, the, the most surreal moment was, of course, the Oval Office meeting on June 1st. And that sets the stage for everything that happens later that day. Right. So we have this very heated discussion in the Oval Office. The president's up and down out of his chair, ranting and raving. He's pushing for troops to be deployed to, to the Capitol. We talk about the shooting of protesters. But it's that point in time as Millie and I, General Millie and I walk outside the meeting, we feel like we, we're going to resign on the spot. And uh, we go to the next meeting, which is the call with the governors. And that turns out badly. And I make a mistake there. And then, uh, you know, I rush back to the Pentagon, getting National Guard moving in, because I know if I can get National Guard to support law enforcement, it will forestall another presidential call for active duty troops. And then, of course, the walk to the park. And the bottom line is uh, I didn't have my political antennae calibrated and uh, I got duped into joining the president in a walk to the park to ostensibly 
see the damage. And uh, we, Millie and I figured this out really quick. It was a mistake. And uh, we came out and owned it. But, you know, a certain amount of damage was done. But it's what's important are the, are the next two days that follow and, and what I do then. What do you think the role and responsibility of the, the Trump family is in all this? Um, his daughter famously carried the expensive white handbag with the Bible in it. Gerard, uh, um, her husband was there as well. These people seem to be profiting even, even in a post-Trump world. What was their role on that day in terms of creating this bizarre situation? You know, I don't I don't know, Andrew, who knew what was going on other than Donald Trump. Um, I mean, clearly she she had brought the Bible, so she knew there was more involved. I, I got to tell you, I I had good rela a relationship with Jared and Ivanka. I know others did not. Uh, as I write in the book, Jared was very helpful to me on on issues such as the Abraham Accords and uh, and Operation Warp Speed. Uh, I've always found him to be, you know, straight up with me and helpful and constructive. Uh, but clearly, you know, they knew more than I knew that day, or at least uh, Ivanka did. But uh, beyond that, I just don't know. You know um, uh, that Esper told you that he was this close, whatever that means. I put, it, I assume he put his fingers together to resigning after the Trump uh, Oval Office meeting. Um how close were you? Were you even closer than this close? Yeah, I described that moment where he were walking out of the Oval Office meeting after that uh, uh, 10 a.m. session with the president. And as we walk out, General Milley kind of leans over and, as you said, puts his two fingers together and says, I'm this close to resigning. And I, I whisper back, me too. And uh, we're just we just are shaking our head, but we know we have to get to the next meeting, get through it. My, you know, my view is in these moments where things get emotional and heated, the best thing to do is not to react, but to kind of let the let the moment settle down and try and take as ra a rational approach as possible and assess the situation. And that's usually my approach to things. But it was one event after another. And look, General Milley uh, takes his oath very seriously as well. He's a professional officer, 40 years in the service, multiple combat tours. He and I kind of grew up in the Army during the same period. Uh, we understood each other really well and it worked together. I was Secretary of the Army. He was Chief of Staff of the Army. So we were kind of fortunate. I was fortunate to have somebody I knew and trusted in that role. And, uh, you know, we got we got each other through those those critical moments there, particularly those first few days. When historians in 50 or 100 years write the definitive histories of this period, do you think some might interpret those few hours or that day as the moment when the military or perhaps you and, and, and Millie drew a line in the sand and said, you can't go beyond this and that, uh, that, that you have to stop? I think, uh, you know, for me, that's true. You know, I talk about in the book how later that night, uh, Millie and I take this long walk along the reflecting pool toward the Lincoln Memorial, which has its own sense of historical irony as well. Uh, and we talk about this and it's, it's what, it's a moment that leads me to think about my role, I direct a, a memo be sent out to the entire Department of Defense the next day, speaking about our values, the importance of being apolitical and, and allowing Americans to peacefully protest. And then, of course, the next day, because the situation worsens, I decide that uh, it's time to draw that line in the sand, stand up before the American people and uh, knowing that I would likely be fired to say that I do not support invocation of the Insurrection Act. And uh, that prompted me to be immediately called to the White House. Um, for tongue lashing. Uh, some of the, the people in 
again, no great surprises here. Stephen Miller doesn't come out of your book looking very good. Uh, nor does Mark Meadows. These are not particularly reputable characters. And what would have happened had a Miller or a Meadows been the Secretary of Defense at this point? Well, you know, what I describe is after President Trump beats impeachment, he brings in, I call them the fresh troops, right? More loyalists. So you have uh, Miller's already there, but he brings in Rick Grinnell. He brings in Mark Meadows. Other people kind of brought in, if you will. And you, be, you, you see Johnny McEntee, the head of personnel, is brought back in. And so you see these loyalty tests happening throughout the administration. And so I was very confident as, as this was happening and they were trying to replace people that if I were to be replaced or if I was fired or if I resigned by my under my own hand, that they would put a loyalist in and uh, the president could do that. And uh, my view was God help us then. And if you fast forward to November 10th, when I'm fired on the 9th, and then, of course, uh, a number you know, a whole crew come in and take over the Pentagon and you see things happen immediately. Uh, the president calls a meeting about taking a, striking Iran. Uh, they begin the immediate redeployment of troops out of uh, out of Africa. There's the talk about withdrawing all of our forces from Afghanistan. I mean, all these things begin happening. And as I said, that gets back to the question you first asked. Well, why didn't I resign, or why didn't I speak up? I didn't speak up because I would be fired. And why didn't I resign? Because I didn't want to. I didn't want to give a team like that, who had less than 60 days to do some harm. I didn't want to give them eight months to do harm uh, to the institution, to the country, or to to whomever. We talked about Miley coming this close to resigning. How close did we get to the whole security of the world unraveling? How how dangerous was the situation? At what point were you most fearful, particularly in retrospect, that things could have simply unraveled? You know, I think through uh, there, 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 there's there, there are a number of moments, as I describe in the book, beginning in uh, late summer through the fall, where we have these National Security Council meetings where people want to talk about conducting an attack on Venezuela, right? It's not something that would unravel the world. But look, as I would often say, General Milley would often say in these meetings, it's easy to get into a war, but very hard to get out of one, right? Ask Vladimir Putin right now. Uh, but there would be talk about military actions against Venezuela or maybe a strike against Iran. And then, of course, uh, this came up uh, late last year. You know, we, we, we pick up information that the Chinese are a little bit rattled about the noise coming out of D.C. So I have to send this back channel message through my civilians to the Chinese to tell them to, you know, settle down. Nothing going on here. You, you know, things are under control. And of course, I, I direct Millie to do the same a couple of weeks later. But there were things like that that I had to keep my eye on because we didn't need to end up in a war. It, that was one of my four no's, uh, no unnecessary wars. And I want to make sure that I you know, as best I could, kept uh, kept DOD on a straight and narrow and kind of tamped these things down until we got to the election. How would you describe men like Miller and Meadows and some of the other ultra-loyalists in the Trump administration? Are they simply opportunists? Um, or, or have they, or they have they no morality? And did they really have, some of them at least, some sort of evil intent? You know, I, I, I don't know Stephen Miller that well. I think he was an opportunist for the policy views he held uh, that he saw in Donald Trump, somebody who he could uh, he could give these ideas about, you know, sending a quarter million troops to the border or these very harsh immigration policies. And so he, he and he leveraged that. Um, 
Meadows was more complicated. Oftentimes I couldn't tell whether Meadows was, was acting on behalf of Trump or on behalf of himself. And he was just not somebody I found to be trustworthy at all. And I described, you know, numerous examples in there in the book. So uh, anyways, th this was dangerous. And I, I didn't think either of them served the president well. Maybe Trump thought they did, but I didn't, they didn't, certainly didn't serve the country well, in my opinion. Is there a man outside Miley and the, 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 the military um, administration, is there someone who comes out of all this looking credible? From the um, administration, well, look, I, someone that you genuinely trusted. Uh, I'll paint a broad brush across the Pentagon. I thought, you know, the civilians there, for the most part, all wanted to serve their country and do the right thing, and they they hung in with me till the end um, in terms of doing that, and oftentimes at their own professional risk. And so, I give a lot of credit to them, those uh, senior civilians, and and a number of you know members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who really. Did the right thing. I had some very good civilian secretaries who were committed to doing the right thing and protecting institutions. So, uh, look, I, to me, DOD and its leadership really stood strong and did the right thing. And during some tough times, because you know, keep in mind when when Trump was faced with problems, he always would come to DOD for the solution. Right? Uh, need a border wall? Go to DOD. Uh, unrest in the streets? Go to DOD. Uh, dealing with a once in a lifetime, uh, once in a century pandemic? Go to DOD. I mean, constantly we were kind of his go-to organization for good or bad, and we had to navigate each of those on a case-by-case -case basis. You dedicate the book to your wife and your three children. Um, have you talked to your kids about this, about oh, your yes. responsibility? And I'm guessing Trump wasn't particularly popular amongst a lot of young people. Were they quite ambivalent or critical? No, I, I look. They they know me because um, again, I uh, I committed my life to public service. But I, look, I don't. Uh, I'll let them characterize their views on Trump. But I, uh, I'm, I'm proud that they were as supportive as they as they have been of me. And uh, you know, were always able to keep me humble uh, uh, through their wisecracks and whatnot. And just kind of tremendous kids and good citizens. So I'm very proud of them. I'd like to be in a little fly on the wall there. Uh, uh, Mark, for some of those wisecracks, I'm sure they they continue to make fun of you. We had Maria Yovanovitch on the show a couple of months ago, another woman who stood up to Trump. How much lasting damage did this administration do in terms of America's role in the world, and particularly in terms of Ukraine and the Russian invasion? Do you think it would have happened had Trump been able to responsibly deal with Putin and Ukraine? Well, you know, if you, if you read the book, you know, I try to be fair to folks here and and to be fair to Trump, you got to give him credit for approving the sale of lethal arms uh, to Ukraine in 2017. So we're talking about the Javelin anti-tank missiles and, of course, supported the training of Ukrainians by Americans in Western Ukraine. I, I visited the training site and was very impressed by that. And I think those two factors have been critical uh, to Ukraine's success. Uh, but then again, he held up the security assistance. And I'm not sure that had a material effect one way or the other, but I think it's almost too hard at this point to reach back uh, to figure out Trump's relationship. I mean, clearly, I, I, I talked to all my allies and partners. I still do uh, speak to many of them. And uh, Trump's tenure rattled uh, them with regard to Americans, America's role and support for the alliances that we were in, either NATO or bilateral alliances with countries like Japan or Korea. So I think it will take some time to rebuild that. And unfortunately, the Biden administration didn't help with the withdrawal from uh from NATO, from Afghanistan.
Afghanistan. I'm sorry. We had a number of NATO allies. So I think we have to do, do some and show them that we'll be there when times are tough administrations. And we have to convince the American people that the United States has to perform a leadership role in the world, because if we don't, uh, then autocracies like China and Russia uh, could win. And then we will lose this great democracy and prosperity and every our way of life that we have. And to me, that's the challenge of this century. It is, of course, the challenge of the century, uh, Secretary Esper. But hasn't America changed? The America of 2022 is not the America, certainly, of 1989. We had Francis Fukuyama, the author of The End of History, on the show uh, last week. Can America remain the policeman, the moral chaperone of the world? Well, I'm, I'm not one to believe we should be the policeman of the world, but certainly we have to be the leader of the free world, and that requires you know, doing some things. That means we have to have a very strong and capable military. We have to have a strong and capable diplomatic corps. We have to support that with our economy and where we need to be uh, foreign assistance and uh, and foreign aid. And, you know, I, Francis Fukuyama wrote this, you know, the famous uh, uh, piece about the end of history, but clearly history hasn't ended. And we always have to be on guard against resurgent or revanchist uh, autocracies like, you know, again, like Russia and and um, and China. And that means we have to continue to persuade the American people uh, that we have to engage in the world. I mean, there is this isolationist tendency in our country that goes back from the, the founding of the Republic. And we have to, you know, take, I consider myself a Reagan Republic, Republican. It was Ronald Reagan who kind of could speak to those higher truths and, and lead us in the right way. You know, as you refer back to 1989, he's the one that, you know, won the Cold War. And we saw the Berlin Wall fall that year, and the Soviet Union collapsed a few years after that. How isolated, uh, Secretary Esper, do you consider yourself within the Republican Party? The Slate review of your book, for example, suggests that while you may have told some truths about the crisis period, you never really addressed why a Republican Party elected a man like Trump. Are, are you feeling isolated as a traditional Republican? Do you feel that perhaps... You need a new party, a new wing, a new organization to articulate those traditional values? Well, first of all, in terms of what I wrote, uh, how I wrote and what I wrote for, I, I tried to limit it to my tenure. So that began in in uh, November 2017 and ended in November 2020. So I wasn't trying to reach beyond that. But as I've, uh, as I've said, I think uh, I, I'm a Reagan Republican. I'm not about to give up on my party. It has a great history with a lot of, you know, tremendous leaders. And I think we need to fight for it. We need to get it back. And that means convincing a lot of Republicans these days, Republicans who are kind of still caught in, in, in Trump's enthrall, to convince them that, look, you can get the same Republican, uh, traditional Republican policies, but with somebody who puts country first and somebody who has integrity and somebody who can, uh, you know, rally the Republican base, grow it, and then win elections. I mean, Donald Trump lost. The, the White House in 2020, he lost the Senate, he lost the House of Representatives as well. And if you want to advance, you know, conservative ideas, you can't do it by being out of power. And so that's my message. I think we have to fight for that. We have to persuade uh, the American people, Republican voters, that there is a generation of leaders out there who are in the wings. They just have to show some distance themselves, some leadership from Donald Trump. And that's going to be the tough part. Subtitle of your book is about extraordinary times. It's presented in a historical context. Perhaps those extraordinary times you suggest, at least in this book, ended when Trump went out of office. But it seems to me as if, if anything, given what you just said and given these kinds of books and revelations, that we're living in even more extraordinary times, that it's increasingly self-evident 
of the degree, I mean, I'm using this word, you may not agree, of the criminality of the Trump regime. And yet he still remains an extremely popular figure within the Republican Party. Isn't that particularly troubling? You know, the, the trouble we face is not uh, not just the, the last administration. I think this has been going on for years. I, I saw a good story recently by a, an interview of, of a noted historian who said that this kind of division between the parties and this partisanship actually goes back to the 1960s. And it's just increased over time. And Trump didn't introduce it, but Trump amplified it, right? This kind of strain for his party. And we see we see what's happening with the Democrats. So we're, we're in this very unusual time, and I've spent 25 years in D.C., where the parties seem to be fighting internally amongst themselves more so than between each other. So you have Trump Republicans and, and you know, traditional Republicans on one hand, and then you have within the Democratic Party, you have, you, you know, the um, progressive far-left liberals, and you have the moderates. And so you have these two fights going on, and neither party really knows or would challenge who's going to run for them in 2024. So it's a, it's a strange time uh, during our country, but we need two strong, capable parties with two good leaders. And, uh, you know, it's going to take some time and some effort to get back to that. Jonathan Rausch, I'm sure you know, um, uh, as an old friend, he was on the show. He wrote a, an interesting op-ed in the New York Times as a Republican saying that as a Republican, he was much more fearful of the radical wing of the Republican Party than he was of the radical wing of the Democratic Party, even though he's no great defender of Democrats and certainly left Democrats. Would you agree with Rausch in terms of the future of democracy? Should we be more fearful of the Trump Republicans than the woke Democrats? Well, I, I, I'd want to see what he wrote and how he framed that and everything. I mean, context matters, obviously. I uh, I'm not, uh, 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 what I'm afraid of is that really small minority of people who decided that they would come to the Capitol on uh, on January 6th and get themselves spun up and respond to President Trump and go to the Capitol, Capitol and, and, you know, raid the building. That's, that's what scares me is that there were actual people who would do that, who would try and uh, disrupt the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th. I mean, that's a threat to our democracy. And so that's the people, those are the people that really trouble me. And look, they're out there um, and, and that's, they've always been out there. And uh, what you got to avoid is, or what we need are leaders who will not play to that type of uh, narrative that will kind of aspire us to bigger things and kind of speak down to that, say that, look, that's not right. We don't do that. That's where leadership comes in. I wonder whether this whole period um, could be an argument to suggest that Rather than having less military involvement in politics, we need more, and perhaps there needs to be uh, a serious look at national service, because of all the institutions that came out of this bizarre period, the military comes out looking best. Are you someone who who thinks we should look at national service? Is it a way of rebuilding America, of of of, of uniting people who otherwise would never have the ability to see or talk to one another? Well, let me make sure I address your, one of your points first. We do not need the military involved at all in politics. We should keep it extremely far away from that. It needs to re remain a, an apolitical institution. But let me get to your point. I mean, it's it's a great point. I've, I've talked to folks about this. I think a virtue of serving in the military is the fact that you get to meet people that you otherwise would never meet, right? Black, white, brown, Asian, you name it. Uh, you get to meet people from uh, of other religions, faiths. Maybe they're even atheists. You get meet people who are 
you know, uh, straight, gay, bisexual, and you're forced into a situation where you wear the same clothes, uh, you eat the same food, uh, you get the same pay, and you're focused on a mission of defending the country. And it has a great unifying effect on, on everybody. That was my experience going to the academy. And then, of course, serving in the military, uh, of, of having experienced that richness of America coming out from all corners of the country. So, look, uh, people would say, do you want to draft? Well, I, I don't want conscription because that would that would affect the quality. But it would be, it, on the other hand, if you could figure out a way to do that or some type of national service where you brought people together out of their silos, out of their bubbled community, and so they can think and meet other people and kind of break down these uh, stereotypes they formed in their head. I, Look, I think it'd be a great thing to do. I just don't know how to, um, secretary recruiting and how important it is to not just recruit from the South or Southwest, but to recruit from America's large urban areas as well. It is the great mixing pot and it's delivered a lot of good. And I'd love to see us get back to something like that, where we bring young people together from all walks of life. Final question, Secretary Esper, uh, it's a, a lit hub like question, uh, rather than a political question. I, I think this is your first book, right? Yes, and probably my last. I'm curious, uh, almost 700 pages. Uh, you wrote it yourself. What did you learn about yourself about writing this book? It's not easy, is it? Oh, no, it's very difficult. And uh, it took a lot of time. You know, people say, well, why didn't you tell us sooner? Why'd you wait two years? And I began writing within you know a month of my departure. And I actually wrote it pretty quickly in four months. And then it had to endure the uh, 10-month DOD process, review process for classified material, because I couldn't talk or write anything until it was cleared. And uh, that's a whole other story about how I had to eventually sue the Pentagon to get, to get the book cleared. But anyways, what I learned is that writing can be great therapy in terms of getting your thoughts down on paper, uh, explaining what happened, uh, gaining clarity and accuracy and completeness. And I knew that If I wrote a book, uh, it being a first person cabinet member, I did want to take time to get that story right, because it's very important uh, that the American people know their history, that we know our history, because it's not just important in terms of looking back, but in terms of looking forward to make sure that we, we sustain the good and prevent the bad from ever happening again.